Hello and welcome to another episode of Tank Nerds. My guest today is a military collector with a passion for French vehicles. It's Baz. Hi Baz, how are you? Thank you so much for joining us. Nice, nice to see you, Richard. I think we bumped into each other at uh, Tank Fest, didn't we, last? I was going to say, how was your Tank Fest experience? Uh, first one I've been to as an exhibitor. Um, thoroughly enjoyed it. Really well uh, run. Um, got to uh, get inside a lot of uh, uh, the other guest armors uh, that were there, the other tanks. Absolutely loved it. Four best four days of this year, definitely. <laughs> and it was odd. What is it? Really strange to see people again. It was my first experience of sort of getting out of the big wide world post pandemic and uh, actually seeing a lot of people again. Yes, it was. Some people I was avoiding because I owed them money, but we're not, we're not going there. <laughs> <laughs> so, Baz, um, as I said, thank you so much for coming on here. Um, tell us a little bit about your collection. So, I mean, the thing that struck me when we first met was I've met a lot of collectors over the years who collect, you know, German armour, uh, English, American, etc., etc. But I have to say, um, outside of, obviously, Sumer, the French Tank Museum, um, you were the first person with this passion for French armour. Where did this all stem from? Okay, well, when you were young, uh, Richard, did, did you have uh, little toys that you used to play with? Absolutely, yeah. Or matchbox, stinky, that sort of thing. Action men. Action man. Okay, that'll do. We'll go there. And just the same for me. Um, I remember going on holiday with my parents and they used to buy me, I think it was called uh, Solido or, uh, or Solido, which were these little toy metal tanks made in France. And of course, I had the German ones, I had the American ones. And then eventually we, sort of, we ran out of their exhaustive range and we ended up with... Um, with sort of French tanks. So I used to get these weird and wonderful little toys that I used to play with and just fantastically um, well-made little toy, but just uh, absolutely bizarre designs. And I think that sort of s stuck in my subconscious. So as I got older, I thought, well, I wouldn't mind um, uh, exploring um, uh, some of those little toys I used to play with. So I went to the usual sort of route, which was the uh, uh, buying a Jeep uh, and then uh, went on to buying a Dodge and then uh, an Akmat, which is one of these French lorries, and it just it rolled from there, and we ended up with um, sort of armour at the at the end of the day, really. And so, what's what's the collection at the moment? Then, just run us through your collection. Okay, so um, on the soft skin front, I've got um, a Hotchkiss Jeep, which is a copy of the Willis Jeep. People might be familiar with those. I've got um, Peugeot P4, which is another soft skin uh, 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 Jeep that's in current use for the French Army. We then go into the um, uh, the trucks. So we've got uh, Renault, sort of four by four. Uh, we've got a Simca Marmon, uh, some uh, uh, loitering around somewhere in the back of one of the sheds, which needs a bit of attention. Uh, and then we go into the armour. So we've got Panhard AML. So we've got the 60 and the 90. And then we, we, we go through, and at the moment I'm running with four AMX tanks. Um, uh, so we've got the uh, AMX 13 with a, with a 90, uh, with a, sorry, 105 millimetre gun on it. So that was the one that I, I had at Tank Fest. We've got uh, an SPG there as well. We've got the armor personnel carrier, and we've got the AMX thirteen. Uh, it's called a Ben Hur, which is a sort of um, a, a, a driver instruction vehicle. Uh, that that is what I'm running with at the moment, trying to get in um, an armored recovery vehicle as well at some point. Um, and I've had to let some of the collection go uh, because I've got more tanks than my wife's got handbags, and that's just <laughs> not going to cut the mustard in the long term. <laughs> So when you're looking at these vehicles, Baz, I mean, it's always fascinating me with private collectors um, that there is, I mean, 
you you have this penchant for the French um, for for whatever reason. Um, but but um, when you go into the heavy armour, I mean, surely the upkeep and maintenance and the initial selection of these vehicles is incredibly hard. Um, this is the whole thing. I think is when you say heavy, I'm not in the in in the area of a main battle tank yet. Okay, so that's something like the AMX thirty. <laughs> I'm still <laughs> Lloyd. Yes, then we've got uh, conversations happening. Uh, around that area as well. But I, I've just sort of come into light armour, so this is quite a light tank. AMX 13, the 13 nomenclature means it's 13 tonnes in weight. Okay, this one's slightly over because it's been upgraded. So I'm running with 15 tonnes. The width of the tank is about two and a half metres. The length of the tank is about five metres. So actually, if you think about it, I think there's some SUVs driving around on the roads at about that size, <laughs> to be honest. So it, it's manageable, and I think that's where I am at the moment. So, yes, you're quite right. Sometimes I do go out. Everything needs a job doing on it. There's broken this and broken that, and you have a sort of a slight panic attack. Then you calm down, and you think, it's only nuts and bolts. My life doesn't depend on it. Just get it fixed, get it out there. So, uh, yeah, it does fill you with dread, but I've made sure I've only chose things that I can actually handle. What's the out of, out of your collection? And you mentioned the AMX. Now, I, I was very lucky enough a few years ago to have um, to have a drive in an AMX, and I have to. I mean, I come from obviously uh, you know the army background with the main battle tank, so a lot bigger, a lot heavier, as you already said. But the thing yeah. that struck me about the AMX was it is incredibly small inside. Now, I, I mean, even from the the sort of point of view when you're <laughs> you're getting into the commander's cupola, and I'm not a big guy, and I have to say I struggled getting into there. Well, we, I've got a, I, I must mention them now. I've got a band of um, very trusty supporters and helpers, and, and they come out and help me um, uh, work on a lot of these vehicles. And, and, and some of them, they won't mind me saying, are rather larger gentlemen. And uh, yes, you're <laughs> quite right. Some people can actually get in the tank. Um, I'm starting to struggle myself, to be honest. So it's always hands above your head and slide down, and maybe a uh, pot of Vaseline might help if it gets a bit too tight. Um, but the, uh, definitely, they are very, very small inside. And, I, and when they were in service, the, uh, the, the, the French servicemen were, were, were chosen by height. So uh, I have heard stories where the, the recruits would turn up onto the parade ground, they would line uh, the recruits up, and they would go, right, those people, put your hand up, uh, anyone that's under uh, five foot seven, so sort of five hands would go up, or in France, it might be a few more than that. Uh, and then it was uh, grab those people, move them to one side and said, you're in tanks. And I think that was the way they actually chose um, uh, their crews was was by size, not necessarily by uh, acumen or skill or, or whatever. It's just, are you small enough to get inside of that? And and that's how they chose them. So it is very tight. You're, you're, you're quite right. Incidentally, when I was at Tankfest, I was allowed to get inside... Um, uh, there was a, a chieftain there. And when I got in, the first thing I said to them is, this is palatial. Uh, you've got so much <laughs> space. The floor was down there somewhere, about three feet away. And rather than, so yes, I can understand it's, it's a really tight vehicle to get uh, in and out of. What about driving it, Baz? I mean, you must thoroughly oh, enjoy it. I have to it's say. It's amazing. Yeah. The, the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, for me, it is one of the most fun vehicles I've ever drove. I mean, and I've, I've driven a fair few now from, I think, possibly the worst from a, I don't know, a physical point of view was a T34. I found that, I mean, it's just hard work to drive. But you got inside the AMX, and I found it actually really fun. Um, it's quite nippy. It was, you know, the acceleration was decent. Steering was good. 
Yeah, the, it's an interesting thing, and I, I won't go into too great depth in it, but I'm sure uh, people can look this up if, if they wish. But inside the AMX, they've got two sets of tillers that you steer with. You've got an accelerator, a brake, and a clutch, and you've got a gear stick. Okay, so if you imagine, you've got all these things to um, to balance as you're driving along. So I think an octopus would be the best person to drive one of these uh, because of those eight <laughs> things to do all at once. But yes, if you just uh, get, as soon as you get the thing going, um, my goodness, they're fast. They are really very, very responsive on the steering. And as uh, I found uh, at Tankfest to my, um, uh, 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 well, upset, uh, how can I say, um, to my shock, uh, it turns a little bit quicker than I hoped. So one point I was sort of facing uh, David Willey, who was doing the commentary, uh, <laughs> and he got a bit overexcited. So I managed to rectify it and, and stop sliding. Uh, so yes, it was the first time I'd really sort of um, uh, power slid the tank. Uh, but yes, there's a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of poke uh, in there. It goes very fast. I've got an automatic gearbox in mine, so I don't really need to worry about the gear changes. But I'm reckoning I could probably get 45, maybe even 50 miles an hour out of that on a hard surface in a straight line, and my tracks were tensioned correctly. We've we've obviously the current, very current at the moment is all the, the fuel shortage and everything. I was just, funny enough, I was asked the other day, and um, it's, it's, I've no idea. What sort of mileage would you get from an AMX? Okay. If you're asking when you go to buy an AMX, what miles per gallon do I get out of it? You shouldn't be buying one. I think it's just <laughs> <laughs> that is just not a relevant part of the conversation. What it what the conversation should be? Can I afford it? And it's simple as that. Can I afford to drive a thing? Okay, I don't actually know to be honest because yeah, I, I didn't know um, the answer either. This guy asked me. I, I said I have absolutely no idea. He was talking about I think Challenger One or something. I said, do you know what? Without looking it up, I've no idea whatsoever. No, you just go until it, just very, very quickly on this. On the on the, the French had these Panard armored cars as well, the AML series. They do not have a fuel gauge. Okay, so when you're actually driving along, you have no idea how much fuel you've got. So you have to stop, get out, you open up the um, uh, uh, the fuel cap, and there's this little stick in there. It's a bit like Charlie Chaplin's uh, uh, walking stick, and you pull it out, and that's actually got the fuel on the end of it. So I think does the Russian tanks do the same? Yeah, about the yeah, T series dip, dip in the fuel tanks, and I have to say, even yeah. on Chieftain, we um, we uh, because the fuel gauge was so inaccurate, you'd also dip the fuel tanks as well just to make sure you how much you had in there. So yeah, fair I point. Remember, look. I remember looking, uh, I'm restoring one at the moment. I looked in there, I thought, what's that? And I pulled out three dipping sticks. So people have just thrown them in over the years until the fuel tank was filled up with dipping sticks. Um, but on the, on the, on, on the AMX, great. It's got um, a gauge on there. Again, not accurate, um, but it indicates uh, when I'm sort of getting low. For three days worth, four days worth of driving, I put in uh, 40 gallons. So that equates to, I mean, work the maths out on that. Um, about hundred and about two hundred pounds in fuel. Oh, it's actually a lot so, better uh, than I was imagining, to be honest. Yeah, well, it's a light tank, so yeah, we're, we're doing we're doing pretty good on it. And I'm not moaning because this one's diesel. <laughs> if it was petrol, it'd be a very different matter. <laughs> uh, Baz, I had a question. Funny enough, this morning from um, somebody who follows our channels. Now, it was all about this conversation about private collectors. So I want to want to run this one by you. Don't have to answer, of course. Um, but there is a feeling that. With the private collectors, um, you know, some people, and I know my opinion on this, think that, well, why why are the, are the likes of you collecting these vehicles when 
they should be, you know, it should be for everybody to see. It should be in a museum. It should be something like that. And I had a, actually a conversation with this guy about the fact that it was, well, let's take some of the bigger collectors, your, your Kevin Wheatcrofts, your Bruce Cromptons, yeah. these sort of people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's be brutally honest. If it wasn't for the likes of all of you private collectors, there are an awful lot of vehicles out there that just wouldn't exist anymore. They, they just would not be seen. Um, you know, a museum cannot afford to restore, I don't know, a, a panther no. or a tiger or something. Um, so it's just not going to happen. Um, and I have to say, and I also said to him that every private collector I've ever come across, it's also, they love, I mean, you know, Tankfest was a prime example of this, taking these vehicles out and allowing the general public to see them. Um, so I think I stood up well for the private collectors. Um, <laughs> and I think I'm, I put my point across there. But, you know, when you have a discussion with people and, you know, what's your hobby, Baz? Well, I, I collect, you know, you know French vehicles. Um, they, they, they must think you're slightly potty or something. <laughs> I think it was the French bit at the beginning that probably <laughs> they thought it was driving. Um, uh, let's, let's be honest, OK? Um, at the end of the Second World War, the French were absolutely strapped for cash. Um, I'll, I'll get back to the private ownership in a second, if you don't mind. But the French yeah, were yeah. just strapped for cash. So what they tried to do is they just used American kit. And so when you go to any of these shows and you see the half truck, you see the Jeep, and you might even see some of the tanks, even the Panther tanks you talked about, they've all been in the French army. The French were so desperate, they collected all this off the battlefield, tried to repurpose it, and the Americans supplied them as well. Sherman Tanks is a prime example. And they yeah. carried on using them, and they kept going and going and going till they got, in some of them, to about 1960s. There was a, they had to bring the tanks out on the streets in Paris in about 62, so it was the end of the Algerian War, and everyone was up in arms about it. So they said, right, we're going to put tanks on the streets. So they brought out the Shermans. So they brought out 100 Shermans, I think it was, and only two of them worked. So they had to link them by chains and drag them around behind each other to try and impress on the Parisians how dangerous it was to have another revolution. I would have been laughing up my sleeve if I'd just seen these ancient tanks from another epoch being dragged around on the ends of chains. I think so then the French realised they had to sort of, um, uh, and they were very proud nations, to be honest. They wanted to develop their own, their own vehicles. So, yeah, the AMXs came out. There was some really innovative stuff they were doing in armoured car space. I mean, you look at the numbers of tanks that the French designed pre-World War II, and then in secret during World War II, so the Germans didn't even know about it, and that was why they were ready with these fantastic advanced tanks at the end of the war, AMXs being, being one of them. So I've got my hat off to these people, but what it does mean is if I'm collecting in that French environment, I've now got access to German. I've got access to American. They even used um, uh, the Daimler Ferret, so I've got access to English. So by being interested in the French vehicle, I can encapsulate all those other nations. So that's the sort of sort of the area that, uh, that that's why I've stayed in that. You, you've talked about private ownership. Now let's let's be uh, quite clear: the vehicles that I've got were about to be cut up. Okay, these were not. I didn't get a checkbook and go to I don't know a, a dealer in France and say, "Look, I'm really after this." I'm talking about stuff that was unloved, forgotten, thrown out the back and rotting away. So the, 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 the tanks that I've, I've recently got, um, I was looking for a number of years to get one. There's a lot on the private market. And then I had a tip off, which was, you must go over to this particular uh, a company. Um, I understand that they might have parts for you. So I made contact and it took two years to build up a relationship with this particular company. And I was invited to go across. When I got there, lo and behold, sat in front of me was my, my dream tank. I wanted this AMX 13, and there it was. Um, I said to the chap, I want that tank. I said, how much is it? And he said, it is. And he gave me a price per tonne. 
So that was quite confusing to me because when you, you don't you don't go and buy your Ford Escort and uh, oh you don't have those now. Give my age away a Ford Focus and you go right that's fine okay so I'm going to charge you five thousand pounds a ton because you just don't do that. So I was thinking hang on we're at cross purposes here. I said right okay well that's that's really good yeah. Um, I said so what are you looking at and he gave me a price and I thought that tank doesn't weigh that much what is he going on about? And what he was actually selling me unbeknownst to me was six of them. And they were around me with covers on. So I agreed to the price, thinking, well, that's pretty fair. And he goes, right, how are you going to take all of them? And I looked round, and there was just, uh, just there were, I think it was six tanks. I just purchased six without knowing it. I went for one. I came home with six. Again, the wife wasn't happy when those turned up. I still, was I that with the motor? <laughs> wife wasn't there, luckily. She let me go on my own. She doesn't let me go anywhere on my own now since then, in case I come back to something ridiculous, like half the French army. What sort of condition were they in Baz? Were they, I mean, was one of them a runner or something when you got them, or no? Uh, yeah, one was a one was a runner. The rest were absolute basket cases. We started restoration on um, one of the tanks with a shovel, so you don't. Now we're not removing rust. We're beyond that. We're actually cleaning it out. We're talking about uh, half a foot of detritus and what was left of the engine and cooling system in the bottom wow. of the tank, and we had to physically shovel it out before we even could start. So, yeah, it has been an upward struggle. It's taken quite a while for us to get here. Hence, when we'd restored one, we had to release that into the open market just to give us the further funds to work on the rest because this is it's no, it's no cheap undertaking when a torsion bar, which is the suspension bar that runs uh, 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 between the wheels, providing suspension, they're £1,300 each, okay? Yeah. You've got 10 on a tank. If you lose 10, <laughs> that's a big bill, okay? It's, then it's beyond economic repair the vehicle is no good so always look out top tip if you're going to buy an amx 13 richard you ever think about it check your suspension's <laughs> good because that's that that's where all your money's going to go they all see them sinking and then so oh it's just so yes you've you, you've got you've got to bear in mind they're cheap to buy but very expensive to restore what sort of restorer would you say you are? Are you? Um, I mean, the other reason I asked this is because um, a while ago it was Kevin Wheatcroft who was restoring a Sherman, and I went, I went down to visit him, and I looked inside, and he'd spent the best part of, I don't know, it's so ridiculous, like three, four months, looking for a pen holder um, that was apparently next to where the commander's position was, but he wanted, you know. So I mean, I've seen restorations everywhere from oh my goodness, you jump inside, it looks like this has come off the factory assembly line. It is that pristine, yeah. that immaculate, and that accurate to the period. Um, and you also, of course, get the restorations where, let's let's face it, they get the suspension, the tracks on, they get the engine yeah. running, and that's about it. Leave the rest of it. Well, where would you classify yourself as a restorer? Okay, if you've got a, a really good collection that is of, of historical significance, so you've talked to a couple of people there earlier, and they've got fine collections, and they are of a significance. That's absolutely brilliant. And to do that, then, if you're making, you have this significant collection, if you've got these vehicles within it um, uh, portraying particular elements, then you want to make sure that they're bob on. They're the very best that you can do because it, it adds to the collective um, sort of nature of, of what you've got. And I can totally understand you saying, Matt, Kevin, they're looking for pen holders. I'd love to do the same. I'm, I'm not, unfortunately, in that environment at the moment i'm just about get the thing running get in it fall in love with it okay because i don't think you can work on anything you don't like i just a very controversial case but if you actually genuinely 
love or, or, or feel passionate about that vehicle, you will go to the ends of the earth to get it fixed. And that is what you need when you're restoring armor. You've got to have that passion. And so for me to fall in love with something, just looking at it isn't enough. I need to sit in it. I need to feel, I need to feel the vibrations. I need to feel the heat off of it. I need to smell it. The smell of oil. Uh, to quote um, from uh, a Vietnam film, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. I'm going to say I love the smell of uh, <laughs> stale engine oil in the morning. That's honestly, you go into the workshop and you just smell it and it's like visceral. And so therefore, that gives you the passion for it. And when you've got the passion, then you'll do the work. You'll be there till one in the morning, till two in the morning when it's so-called the spanners are frozen in your hand because I've done that because I was passionate about what I was doing. So yeah, it's, it's about striking the balance. And I would love to have an immaculate AMX 13, but I tell you four days of driving around the ring at Bovington with their mud. It's not, it's not immaculate anymore. <laughs> God, what is that stuff? It's like concrete. Um, it so is yeah, a horrible track to you. <laughs> you must know, cause I'm sure that you must've driven through similar grounds when you were I- I- in the forces, just cleaning that stuff off. Yeah. It's when you get that, that sort of heavy caked in mud that gets up into the, you know, sprockets and the suspension units and all the rest of it. So it's really bad. Out of your entire collection, Baz, um, did you ever get a vehicle? And I mean, I could always imagine there must be a, a, a sort of portion that, you know, spare parts and that just don't exist anymore. Or are you pretty lucky with the, the French vehicles? Okay. I have to change the names and the locations to protect the innocent on this one. Okay. <laughs> when you, when, when you've got something that's a bit, different or a bit odd you do get lots of people come out the woodwork and say oh by the way i saw one of those in a ditch or i've seen one of those uh, mouldering away in, in the back of a, a a warehouse somewhere and you'll be surprised that once people know you've got something the, the offers start flowing in um absolutely understand when you're looking at german and american there's quite a high demand for those parts because they're very rare and so the, the price is quite high when you're in the post-war market a little bit different things you still can drive a bargain. You can still get get things cheap if, if you look around. So I had this tip off that there was a warehouse um, that um, was thinking of being pulled down and it, cut, and it had a, quite a lot of parts in there. So I decided to go across and I was invited to go in and, and, and see this uh, warehouse. And when I got inside, the only way of describing it is in the size of football pitches. So we're not talking right. about a shed. I'm not talking about a barn talking about a warehouse the size of a football pitch and there were six of them linked to by a little door so you go into one and you have this whoa next one whoa and inside of there i have never seen so much ordnance in my entire life it was just stacked to the ceiling apparently there were millions and it's millions of tons of parts it's not even just millions of parts it's tons for mostly obsolete vehicles and the problem is is they can't release it onto the market so it has to be destroyed. So I'm sat there and I stood next to a bin seeing a, 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 a shovel, a, 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 a big shovel lorry, loading all these parts that I need into a bin. And I said, where's that going? He goes, oh, he's picking it up for scrap in about a couple of hours. He says, is there anything you want out of there? And I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I need, my God, I can see the suspension parts we spoke about disappearing into the bin. I can see everything just disappearing. And so I managed to strike up a, a relationship and I've been able to very fortunately find an enormous amount of spares uh, for the vehicles that I've got. So I have no problem whatsoever in any part I want. Uh, the only problem is, is going, getting it and bringing it back because since Brexit, it's all a bit uh, up in the oh, air. Yeah, of course. 
Good heavens. Is there is there anything, Baz, if you were, what's the aspiration for the future for you? I mean, have you got a dream vehicle you'd love to own? Um, okay. You, many people say the reason I've got this vehicle is because of its history. Okay, I've got this because it's got a big engine. I like that tank over there because it's got a, a great big gun on it. Okay, so that's the driving factor. It might be for people that like yourself, X-Forces, you might think, well, I used to be in one. Can I recapture my youth by uh, by sitting back in it? And sometimes <laughs> the answer is no. Okay. No, absolutely not, no. <laughs> so most people maybe are driven by that. What I'm driven by, does it look nice? Isn't that an odd thing to be driven by? Do I like the look no, of it? No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, no, chaffy no, no. tank. Love the look at it. Look at the flows, love the lines. I stand there for quite a while just admiring how they sort of designed it. The French, to a certain extent, they've got some weird lines going on. But again, you look at something called the EBR, which had these eight wheels on it, the Panars, the AMXs. Um, and what my next, my aspiration is the AMX 30, not because it's a bigger gun, not because it's the bigger engine, it's because the ass of it looks so great. Okay, you got these these <laughs> you got these ammo bottles, these uh, fuel tanks hanging off, and there's a great big chain on there and a hook and whatever, and it slopes backwards, and it's just like, look at the exhaust pipes, and I'm getting passionate about what it looks like, not necessarily what it can do, and I think that is French all over. Do you know what? I was just, funny enough. I was thinking that exact thing. I said that is so French. It's all it's all about the look and the design. It's <laughs> not about living with it. Look at French motor cars. Oh my god, they look great. Live with it. <laughs> what, what about the collection, Baz, for, I mean, I, I know a lot of the private collectors sort of long-term aim is to, I mean, maybe open their own, you know, like mini museum or something. Um, you know, we've got Bruce who's got his own sort of like <laughs> on his estate, he's got his own museum where he keeps his collection. Um, what yeah. are your thoughts about that? Sometimes if you get into something quite early doors, you can start picking things up at a relatively low value. Okay, so what I'm going to point out at the moment is the Willis Jeep. Everyone knows about the Willys Jeep. Okay. Um, you used to be able to pick one up for about £3,500. Okay. Uh, 15 to 20 years ago, if you could find a, a rough one, people would probably say, oh, no, no, that was far too cheap. I can assure you, if you hunt around in France, you can still get a good deal. I was buying uh, Dodges um, for £2,500. So that's the... Um, uh, the, uh, the 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 quarter ton uh, ammo carrier, so just the, the standard Dodge World War Two sort of a, 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 a truck. So you can get it. So if you get in there early, that's great, and you can build a collection, and then it warrants you spending the money to exhibit it to people. I came late to the party. Okay, and a lot of people are as well. So the aspiration to build this a, a, a collection. Um, is difficult because things just cost so much money. I mean, how, a Panther, if I wanted a Panther tank, what am I looking at? Not seven, <laughs> nine million? Oh, probably, yeah. Is it? Yeah. It's like, I mean, to be perfectly frank, you, you know, name a figure and you, you could probably get one. treble it at least. Yeah. You, you wouldn't know, get one. If you, could get, okay. if you could get one. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So these, these people that have gone to that extent and they've got those collections is absolutely fantastic because they were able to, at some extent, get in there quite early to, to amass it. I'm coming very late to the party, as you can tell by the looks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, getting on a bit. Um, so I'm coming late to the party, so therefore it's not as easy for me. So I think the best thing that I can do is I don't want to end up with a great big dusty collection of uh, uh, vehicles that I don't use. As I said to before, it's the visceral thing. It's the sitting in it. It's the driving it. It's the smelling it. It's the feeling it. Um, and then a great, uh, to me, um, is the sharing of it. So I took my tank to a very small uh, steam uh, show, um, and there was a girl there was um, disabled. 
she was really, uh, she could see she was really enjoying the tank. So at the end of it, I thought, come on, we'll try and get her into the tank. So we spoke to the parents, they brought the parents over and they managed to lift her into the tank. I mean, the, the, the look on her face, she was absolutely ecstatic. She was just like vibrating with, with joy. And I just thought that is what I'm interested in is I felt the passions. She's feeling the passion. Let's just carry on with that. So I think my focus, I'll be absolutely honest, is I can't build a museum. Um, I haven't got the facilities to, to host and bring people in to see it. But if I can get a few choice vehicles that I can share with people, they get to see it. Um, that's great. Look at the what, what sort of um, uh, uh, viewing figures did we get on uh, Tankfest again on the um, on the Internet? I mean, they were really, really high weren't they? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, sort of across the board, it went, you know, half a million people at, at some stage. So, yeah, I mean, this whole uh, this whole world of tanks, as I mean, well, uh, as we know, obviously, from the game, it's just got such an incredible amount of people. Of, and I have to say, age-wise, it's unbelievable when you look at the, the fascination. Everybody from, you know, like toddlers all the way up to, of course, veterans and everything else who are fascinated by this. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's the one thing that I can never really put my finger on as to why there is this fascination for you know armor in particular, but of course military across the board. I mean everybody like you say a Willys Jeep. I would love to own a Willys Jeep. Now, I'm, like you say, I'm not sure why I would love to own a Willys Jeep, but I would love to own a Willys Jeep. <laughs> You need to come and see um, me, Richard. We'll sort you out. I would say, yeah, I, I, I couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford it. <laughs> um, but yeah, the idea so, so of what, you know, own. Sorry, go so, on. so what? Sorry, so what I'm saying there is, is a physical museum that you go to and you stand there in awe and look around it is quite an expensive. What it's, it's quite an expensive aspiration. Okay, it takes a lot of money and a lot of dedication to get there and a lot of stuff to put in it. But um, ah, I've got a little story for you, just quickly. Okay, um, but this online, maybe that's a new way of looking at it like virtual museums. Now, someone's going to say, oh, come on, that's old hat. We're doing that already. And I bet you are somewhere. But, yes, yeah, I know that the Tank Museum at Bovington's uh, embraced that as well. But certainly sort of virtual museum might be the way forward because people are quite used to viewing it uh, through the internet. So maybe there might be something to think about a virtual museum of armour that's French. So maybe we'll, we'll see what goes there. Can I just tell you yeah, a quick no. quick story? Absolutely. Yeah, go okay, on, Basque, right. go, go. It's a, real, a really quick one. Promise. The... When you're collecting stuff, you do get exposed to a lot of special people, okay? Now, these special – I'm a, I am a special person because when I tell people what I do, they, they think I'm, I'm, I'm quite special. <laughs> okay, and so I was over in – and I'm changing the name and the locations to protect the innocent. So I was, I was over in a, a European country, and I was uh, kicking my heels – on the weekend and a friend of mine over there who was uh, from that country said, well, I'll tell you what we'll do is I'm going to take you to a museum. There's a really good museum that's close to here. We're, we're going to go there. So I thought, oh, that's great. I'm really looking forward to this. So we drove down there. We got to the middle of this little village and we stopped outside what was a house. I thought, well, this isn't really sort of what I was imagining. It's going to be a bit more grandiose than this. And we knocked on the door and this chap answered the door. He was an old chap, quite wizened, had long hair, and he was dressed head to foot in a German World War II um, stormtrooper's outfit. So I thought, that's a bit, that's a bit different. This is great. Maybe it's an immersive museum. So you go in and you're immersed in, in it. And so this is all part of it. So we were taken in, went through the front door, straight into the front salon, uh, the front room. Okay, there was nothing in it apart from military. And in the middle of it was a German mine in a shopping trolley. So I thought, ah, now this is going to be special. This is going to be a special museum indeed. Who collects mines, sea mines, out the sea and puts them in oh, shopping trolleys. Oh, it was a sea, one of those like massive... Yeah. 
big oh, black okay. thing with like prongs sticking out of it. So I went over towards it and the bloke was like, oh, so it was so obviously I wasn't meant to touch the thing, whether it's because it was live or he didn't want people to, I don't know. I didn't ask. So this entire front, front salon, we'll call it, was full of, was, was full of, uh, uh, um, munitions. We went to the second room we'd taken through and here was just uniforms. And again, I could see there was a bit of a bias towards sort of German uniforms. Uh, to a certain extent, there was nothing else but. German uniform. So we got that's fair enough. We went through to another room. This is a dark one, didn't have any windows in it. This is full of guns. There were guns hanging from the ceilings. There were guns on every level surface you could possibly see. All of them, again, sort of aiming towards being German. There wasn't much else. Um, and it was at this point I was just like, what a fantastic museum. I mean, this chap must have bought this house. He must say, say he lives next door. He's annexed it. He's put a corridor in and he can come into this museum. And, and, and show people around. So I thought, well, fun, good on him. You know what I mean? It's not my taste, perhaps, but there we go. So he decided to take us into a final room. And this one had a door on it. The others didn't, by the way. So he opens the door and we walked in and it was a shrine, basically, to the um, the political party that sat behind the Germans during the, during the war, Second World War period. So we had a great big banner, a uh, red one, with a white circle and a black something in the middle of it. We had um, a bronze of a particular leader of uh, a, 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 okay, it was Adolf Hitler. Okay, so there was his head um, on this table. There was a great big um, banner behind it. And when you start looking into into the gloom, there was a Stormabteilung outfit over here. There was a, a Waffen-SS outfit over there and on these sort of, um, sort of 1960s um, sort of dummies. Um, and then in the corner was a mock-up, as I thought it was, of Landsberg prison cell where Adolf Hitler wrote Mein Kampf. So there's this, there's this broken sort of old metal uh, army bed with um, uh, German blankets on top of it with all the markings on. I thought, this man is dedicated. Look at this this museum he runs. This is absolutely fantastic. So as he was talking to, there's other people there as well, he's talking to them. I thought, I'm going to sneak out. and I'm going to find where the link is to his house because I'm really interested in how he gets in and out of here. So I went and there was one door we hadn't been through. So I went in over to it, got over the door, opened it, and do you know what was in there? Have a guess, Richard, what was inside? What was I dread to think. <laughs> Just have a guess. Have a guess. Um, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Hitler's bathtub. How about that? <laughs> You're nearly there, actually. It was a toilet. No, so, and it had three walls on it. So I tapped the walls and they were all solid. And I was thinking, hang on a sec, there is no linking route, um, uh, passageway into this museum. And then it, all the pieces started to fall into place. This chap was so passionate about this period, he believed he was a German stormtrooper. He collected everything he could to make that fantasy a reality. And it was his entire life. That was his house. That wasn't a museum. So there was no furniture, okay? There's no sideboard, no TV, no stereo. I couldn't see anything in the kitchen. And his actual bedroom, he was sleeping in a World War II bed with a World War II blanket over it. And he dressed in his attire every day. So I was absolutely, I mean, I was just blown away by thinking that people can be that dedicated. Um, and finally, we were there talking to I, I'm not sure if dedication's <laughs> the word there, to be honest, but there may be another word you're looking for, but... <laughs> And he had, he had all these scars down his face. There was a scar here and it was all down his neck as well. And I thought, I've got to ask the question. It's one of those things like it's the elephant in the room. I've seen all of this. That I've got to ask him, where did he get the scars from? So I, I asked through an interpreter. I said, could you just ask him? Because I, I knew what to say, but I didn't want to upset him. I said, could you ask him where the scars come? He goes, oh, I'll tell you. He goes, um, German mine. 
I said, a German mine. Of course, my brain's just going, it's like, did he purposely maim himself on a on a on a bomb to make his experience even more realistic did he blow himself up Whoa. as part of it and it wasn't and actually thank goodness it is he'd found he goes um, metal detecting he found one poked it and it went off he was very lucky to be alive so as you can imagine i'd gone from what was just a lazy sunday afternoon to meeting this interesting person and seeing uh, sort of an insight into how far you can go if you get into this military so you're not quite that far with the French yet then, Baz, I assume. <laughs> no, not yet. <laughs> not yet. I'm sure the, sure the wife will be pleased to hear you say that. But the wife's French, think, so uh, <laughs> what can I say? Even married a French woman. <laughs> there you go. The obsession continues. With your collection, Baz, is the, I mean, you, you touched on the history and you're obviously passionate about the history. Do you like, for the vehicles, do you know for, for all of them or some of them maybe the background history? Is that something which sort of sells you on the idea as well? Okay, this is where this is where people who have English armour or uh, military vehicles and to a certain extent American do really, really well. The reason is, is those nations kept really good records of what they had and they're willing to share it. I think you are able to go and find out if you give the army registration of a Saracen to the army, they'll tell you where it served and, uh, uh, and what happened to it, which is absolutely fantastic. The French will not do that. Absolutely will not tell you what oh, that well. vehicle did or where it went. So you end up doing something I describe as um, vehicle archaeology. Okay, so you can do it in, in armour. Uh, it's quite easy. And what you do is you dig in the bottom of the hole and you pull things out. So you pull out um, uh, ranking buttons um, rounds, for example, and they'll have the date on the b- bottom of the round. I mean, when I say round, I mean like bullets, um, etc. So you can pull stuff out and that will give you sort of an understanding of where it was. But if you actually want to find out if my vehicle, this registration, served with the French army, not a chance of it. Wow. So you do That's have to really do a lot. Of, yeah, yeah they, the French will not release it. They still see it as, um, as sort of sensitive um, uh, to do. But... If you do go on the internet and you look around, there's what they call um, uh, it's websites that are people that used to serve in those regiments. And now they're getting a bit older. They're wishing to share their memories. And they do post up pictures uh, quite regularly with them next to the vehicle they used to drive. And it's only ever happened once where I've owned a vehicle and I looked on the internet and there was a chap stood next to it. So I, I could understand what happened to the vehicle. But that's just like once in a blue moon. That's very, very rare. So French, forget it. German wow. might be even easier to find out what happened to them because there wasn't so many, I suppose. But yeah, I say for, for certainly for the, like you say for the British vehicles, it's actually I'm not saying it's incredibly easy, but I mean there is a massive no. database where you can literally type in the vehicle registration and, and trace it a long way back as well. So um, well, I wasn't aware of that at all with the French. Um, Bash to finish off uh, reenactments. You're you're involved in reenactments as well. Um, you're looking at me with a the strange look in your face. There. Yeah, no, I do, I do. <laughs> it's just I, I have to say it's not an area I totally, I totally <laughs> understand or, or almost get the passion for. Does that make sense to you? Um, I, I find it fascinating. I've been to a few, um, should I say, really, really good ones, um, which I found interesting. And I have to say, there's been a handful at certain places which I would never name, which I thought, oh my goodness, that's not doing you know any benefit no. to any anybody. Um, okay. The, the the murky world of the reenactor. We're going to delve <laughs> there just very quick. It is a bit sometimes. There's all manner of shenanigans go on. Uh, so reenactment hasn't had a good 
um, press recently. There was a lot of stuff that's been on the internet. There's stuff that was actually published by the BBC as well, in which they try to uncover um, extremist views inside of these groups. And quite right, any any walk of life, you're going to get some sort of extremist that will be happy to, whether they know they're filmed or not, ex- express something that's completely outrageous. Okay, so that's just going to happen. You do find with the reenactors, you get maybe sort of two sorts. You get some that are in love with the idea and some that are in love with it. Okay, so let me, let me give you a working example. I would suggest that the numbers of reenactment of US Airborne 101st would have increased or doubled or tripled with the with the HBO series um, uh, uh, Band of Brothers. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You would have you would imagine that the numbers of people who want to be in it. Look at Fury when that came out, so that was the with the Brad Pitt. The people that are interested in tanking at that point. Look at the the interest there was around the actual Fury Sherman uh, 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 jumbo Sherman, or sorry, Sherman tank that there was at, at, at Tank Fest, a great, still a, a massive appeal to it. So if it appears in the media, great. Everyone's really, really quite interested in it. When it comes to things that are French, no one's ever heard of it. I don't think there's ever been a film, possibly, uh, that, that extolled the virtues of how good the French were in any sort of situation. So um, it is quite a challenge to find like-minded people who uh, want want to do it. So we do it more, instead of reenactment, in a sense, it's more like living history. So what we're doing is we're not looking for the glory. There's always some that want to be the, 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 the French Foreign Legion. We once tried doing French Foreign Legion, and one of my uh, team had his hat knocked off of his head by a serving um, uh, Foreign Legion. Uh, 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 I think he was a, a corporal. And he said, you never ever he says you don't deserve to wear that and knocked it off the, the chap's head absolutely we learned from that right out you we don't chase the glory try and show what it really was like like where the pain was where the suffering was and i don't mean that in in the actual combat i mean the terrible food um i supplied a ration pack once to a local authority that should remain uh, nameless and i managed to give nearly all of the council food poisoning so you've got to be <laughs> I had a letter telling me afterwards, don't ever do that again. Everyone was really ill. So what we're trying to do is to try and show how hard it was for just a general person. This is a conscript, okay, 16, 17 years old. The French say you're now serving. They'd gone through a World War II. They were now in, they were in Indochina. They then gone into Algeria. They just, it was relentless, the actual call upon young people. And they were dragged from their homes, okay, mostly in an agricultural background, and thrust into the army in an ill-fitting outfit. Um, and given really old kit and put in, in danger's way. And so that's what we're trying to do. And quite rightly, it's difficult for us to reenact a battle because there's not really anyone who wants to fight us <laughs> because the, 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 we weren't really actively in World War II uh, as a French uh, recognisable unit. We're sort of dressed as American kit and, and whatever. So, yeah, it is a challenge. People are in it for different reasons, but at the end of the day, what we do is you want to try and show people, look, these poor sods were taken from there and put into there, and this is what they had to live with. No, I mean, I love it. I mean, I always recall, I, I once spent, um, I won't name the show because I think if we're talking about shows that have got bad reputation, this was this is probably high up on there. Um, but a, a Vietnam, um, it was almost like a Vietnam experience, like you say, living history, but they they set it out, and I found it absolutely fascinating. Um, and I, I did, you know, it was really informative. And we actually spent the night with them uh, and we had a few beers and, you know, talk and everything. But yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm all for it. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I'm all for anything that promotes history. 
uh, in my mind, it's only a good thing. Um, and what I love to see, especially about you, Baz, is the fact that you've taken, you know, you, you've gone somewhat, how will I put this, out of the, what everybody <laughs> assumes everybody would do. It's out of the norm, and I like it. Um, and I really, really admire you for it, and I appreciate everything you're doing. Um, I love the idea of, uh, at some stage, doing a sort of, you know, virtual museum at your place, Baz, so perhaps something yeah. you can arrange. Um, yeah. As I said, the vehicles, um, your AMX, when I saw it down at Tank Fest, is brilliant. It's such a fascinating uh, vehicle in particular. Um, and I personally would love to see the rest of your collection. So, yeah. you know, from us, okay. us to you, Baz, you know, thank you so much for all you do for, for history. It's super cool. If people want to get in touch, there will be people who've got questions about, you know, French, French tanks, French armour, French history. Um, is, there, is there some way that people can get in touch with you? Yeah, we used to run a, a website, but it became too complicated in the end. So we're just we've gone onto Facebook. I know, <laughs> it, I know that it, it became too a lot. complicated. <laughs> well, there was just so much spam. I bought so much Bitcoin and never got any return on any of my investments. Uh, what was I doing wrong, Richard? I've no idea. I've no idea. So we've moved off of where I could just get bombarded with spam. So we've gone onto Facebook. I'm afraid a lot of people don't use Facebook either. They don't like it or they think it's a bit old hat because apparently as uh, as a young chap told me at tank fest we don't use facebook anymore he says that's for old fogies so <laughs> there was investing all this time in facebook and it's not attractive yeah i, I love facebook so yeah i know there we go <laughs> so yeah we've got a facebook page so it's french army reenactment group farg we did want to change the group to troop but the uh when you spelt out the uh the abbreviation it was in the it wasn't great. So, yeah, look at the French Army reenactment group. We're on um, uh, 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 on Facebook, and you'll see restorations. You'll see reenactment. You'll see little interesting ditties about stuff that we found. Come and join us. Um, love, to, love to see you on there. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Baz. Um, I'll put a link, obviously, in all our social media and also on the podcast okay. as well, where people to your Facebook page and everything. But once again, Baz, thank you so much. Really appreciate uh, you coming on, having a chat with us. And for everybody else, thank you so much for listening or watching, whichever, whichever you're doing at a particular current moment in time. And until next time, stay safe. <laughs>